Age does not make us more mature. Age makes us older. <laughs> but as we get older, there is never a guarantee of maturity. If I were to ask you, uh, when did you really grow up? Like, when did you finally reach maturity? Uh, we would probably all have different ages that that happened for us. For some, uh, you grew up really early in life. Maybe you're a firstborn. Uh, maybe you had situations that happened in your life that caused you to reach maturity a little bit more quickly than, than others. For others of you, uh, maybe it took a while. Uh, it, maybe it was, a, it was a time when you got out of the house or you were on your own or you had to figure some things out in that first job, whatever it may be. For some of you, you're saying, I don't know if I've ever grown up. Right? Like, I'm, I'm still kind of waiting to reach maturity. So if age is not a guarantee of maturity, how much more true is that when it comes to spiritual maturity? That just because we've been a follower of Jesus for a long time does not necessarily mean that we're spiritually mature. So if time and age doesn't mean that we become spiritually mature. What causes spiritual maturity? And that's what the Apostle Paul turns his attention to next in Ephesians chapter 4. So I'd like you to take your Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 4, and if uh, you need a Bible and you're here at Eden Prairie or at our Adana campus, uh, 1779 on that blue Bible in front of you. And for those who are joining us online, please have a, a Bible open in front of you, whether it's uh, digital or the physical copy, but uh, we do want to have scripture open uh, as we go through Ephesians chapter 4. We're learning about the church from the Apostle Paul, and we're in the midst of this series, Make the Most of It, where we have been trying to make the most of the church that Jesus has given to us. And uh, if you're just joining us in this series, or for those of us who have been here in the series and just need to be reminded about what we've been talking about for the past few weeks, we began the series by looking at the first six verses of Ephesians 4. And in that passage of scripture, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are the church, that we are a body, the, the body of Christ, and that we need to be unified. And we said in week one that that means that the church is not a building that you attend, but rather it's a body that you are part of. And we said last, in that first week that then that means that you can't go to church because you are the church. And, and we need to be the church and be unified together. Then last week, Paul, in verses 7 through 10, drew our attention to the gifts, that Jesus has handpicked gifts, that if you've accepted him and his Holy Spirit has come resident in your life, the Holy Spirit has come in your life, that means that, that you have gifts and that those gifts are intended to be used to help build up the church, that that's one another. And so what Paul is now going to do as we turn our attention to verse 11 is Paul's going to take these two ideas that he's been talking about, unity in Christ and being together and the church being built up, and he's going to bring them together, the idea of spiritual maturity. Here's what he says in verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. So the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and then here it is, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And Paul kind of picks up on these themes of spiritual gifts that he left off with, uh, that we left off with last week. And in particular, he's talking about the gifts that help contribute to church leadership. And he's doing that because he's identifying certain offices of church leadership, and he's doing that to, to make a point. 
It's not because those gifts are more important, but rather they have a special calling. And so he talks through some of the offices of the church. That's why he mentions the apostles, uh, the, the prophets, the evangelists, and then he says the pastors and teachers. Now, in the original language that he wrote, the word pastor and teacher were not two separate words. It was actually one word. It was pastor-teacher. And that's significant because what Paul is saying is he's saying all of the offices of the church, the, those who are involved in church leadership, they all have a, they all have a reason, they all have a calling, they, they all have a task that they are called to do. And pastor-teacher is, is kind of a, a great way to, to summarize that. It's that leadership within the church happens through teaching. Right, that we lead often through teaching, that, that a pastor is to shepherd a congregation or shepherd a church through instruction, through, through the teaching of God's word. And that's important because you need to understand that in a church, it is God himself through his word that teaches and changes and transforms us, and that it's God's voice that's leading. It's, he's the head of the church. The pastor isn't, doesn't own the church. The pastor's not the head of the church. The pastor is just there to say, this is what God is teaching us as we move forward. That's really important to understand. And all of those different offices contribute, uh, and, and specifically, he talks about pastor and teacher, and then in, in the next two verses, Paul gives to us what I believe to be the one-sentence job description for a pastor. So if you had to come up with a one-sentence job description for what a pastor does, what would be in your sentence? Would you say, pastor prays every day? Pastor reads the Bible on a regular basis? That the pastor effectively manages the budget of the church? That the pastor programs? The pastor makes sure that we're, we like the songs that we're gonna sing? Some of you are like, I think the job description of pastor is you work one day a week. I think that's, I think that's what that is. Here's what Paul says is the one sentence job description for what a pastor does. Verse 12. It's to equip his people for works of service. So the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, in the job description that God gives about pastors, pastors are not the ones who do all the ministry. The job of a pastor is to equip the congregation to do ministry. Did you know that? It's, just, it's not just those who are pastors on staff at Wooddale Church that do ministry and then the church comes and watches. That's not at all the image. It's that our job as pastors is to equip all of us to be in ministry, to do ministry. And, that, and specifically, we do that through the teaching of God's word, but it kind of gives to us then, maybe like this would be like a, a good one-sentence job description of, of what a pastor does. It's to help the church be unified in Christ, that's what he's talking in, in verse 12 and, and then into 13, and use their gifts to become more like Christ. So it's what we've been talking about the, the last two weeks in this series, that we become united in Christ and we use the gifts that Jesus has given to us to become more like Christ, and that that is really a sign of what a pastor is responsible for. In other words, a pastor is responsible to help the church become mature, spiritually speaking. That's their job. The role of a pastor is to help bring the church into maturity. Because those two elements of, of unity in Christ and beginning to look like Christ are actually signs of what it means to be spiritually mature. So we could summarize 12 and 13 in, in, in this way. It's to say that signs of spiritual maturity are how unified are you in Christ and how much do we reflect Christ to the world around us. 
So if you wanted to assess how mature is a church, those are, those are two great things to ask questions about. So you could say, well, how, how mature is a church? Well, how united are they in Christ? If that church is one that's full of divisions and disagreements, and those divisions and disagreements kind of spill out into the public sphere, if people who aren't involved in the disagreement know about the disagreement, if people who aren't involved in the church know that the church is having some, some divisiveness or some issues, if, if the church is, is starting to separate and people are, are peeling off and, and going to start other churches, not because they're sent, but because they're angry, those actually would be signs of an immature church. That does not mean that in a church we all agree on everything. That's not what, that's not what, what, what maturity looks like. We can have disagreements about maybe how the budget should be allocated, we can have disagreements about what programs we offer, what service times we have, what the music is that we sing. We can have disagreements about things, but in the midst of those disagreements, a mature church is still unified in Christ. That even though we might approach things in a different way, we can still come together around who Jesus is. We, we come together around our mission, our vision, our values, our, our shared statement of faith. And then in unity, we work out how to reconcile those differences. That's the sign of maturity. It's, it's actually a great way to assess how spiritually mature you are as an individual. Am I in relationship with other people where even though I may not agree with everything they do, we come together on purpose and for the purpose of growing to become more like Jesus together. And that can look like a Bible study, it can look like a small group, it can look like a one-to-one -one relationship, but if you're not intentionally involved in relationship, if you don't have names of other people who are helping you to do that, then there may be an opportunity to grow in spiritual maturity. Because being unified with other people in Christ is a sign of spiritual maturity. And the second is, do we reflect Christ? So you could ask of a church to try to assess how spiritually mature is that church. Do they look like Jesus? Are they reflecting Jesus to the world around them? Are, are they praying like Jesus taught us to pray? Are they teaching the things that Jesus taught us? Are they serving their community in the way that Jesus has called us to serve? Are, are they being generous in the way that Jesus is being generous? Are they making much of Jesus? Because Jesus is the one who is the head of the church. And so as we grow, we start, as Paul says in verse 13, grow into the fullness of Christ. Which means the church needs to be about Jesus. So if you see a church... And, and sometimes you can have churches that are large and small and, and, and that are growing or shrinking, but if you have a church, regardless of what's going on with them, and they make a really big deal about their pastor, or you, they make a really big deal about how they do ministry, or sometimes they make a really big deal about how they don't do ministry, those are not necessarily signs of maturity. When a church makes a big deal about Jesus, that's a mature church because it's Jesus that we're trying to grow up to become and to emulate. And that's a great sign of maturity in our own lives as well. It's to ask the question, am I looking more like Jesus today than I did six months ago? Am I responding to my children more like Jesus today than I was last month? Am I more patient like Jesus? Am I praying like Jesus? Am I serving like Jesus? Am I generous like Jesus? That, that's the call, that, that's the sign of maturity. Are we growing up into the fullness of Christ?
So if that's what maturity is, the question is, why does that matter so much? Like, why, why do we need to focus on spiritual maturity? Why is that even a thing that we should concern ourselves with? And Paul tells us in verse 14 about why spiritual maturity is so important. He starts verse 14 by saying, then. Meaning, once we've matured. So what Paul's doing is in verse 14, he's gonna give to us a little bit of a a vision of what could be. He's gonna say, listen, if, if you become mature, if you're united in Christ, if you grow to reflect Christ, then here is what is possible. And so verse 14 opens with with all of this hope and this potential and this possibility of what the church can do and can be and can look like. And it is where we get so excited about the church and we find in verses 14 and 15 three reasons why spiritual maturity matters. He says, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. I'm just gonna stop right there in verse 14. And the image that Paul uses is is really profound. It's instead of being infants, plural, instead of being a bunch of kids kind of all running around doing whatever that are blown here and there by every wind of teaching, instead we are one, not many, but one mature adult who is confident, who is grounded, who is not blown by every wind of teaching or swept by all the waves of new ideas. So why does spiritual maturity matter? The first reason why spiritual maturity matters is it makes us steadfast in a sea of ideas. And we live and swim in a sea of ideas today, don't we? I think we have access to more information and to more ideas than at any point in human history. I mean, just a Google search. I mean, you can come up with access to almost any idea known to humanity. And then with just a few more searches, you can likely connect with the person who believes those ideas. It's truly remarkable. But just because we have access to all these ideas doesn't mean that new ideas are a new thing. We can believe that that's kind of unique to our culture, that we're the only ones that are having to wrestle with all these new ideas, but this has actually been something that the people of God have always wrestled with. They've always struggled with all of these new ideas, and what do we do with all the new ideas that come our way? Even in the Old Testament, this was something that the people of God were called to be steadfast in the midst of new ideas. One of the wisest people to ever live was Solomon. And 3,000 years ago, he wrote a book about the importance of of staying steadfast and and how to be wise. He actually wrote a a few books. And at the end of of Ecclesiastes, one of the books that we believe he he likely wrote, uh, in verse 12, he writes these words. Solomon says, words from wise people are like sharp sticks used to guide animals. They, They keep us going the right way. They are like nails that have been driven in firmly, that those wise words, they they ground us and and they keep us stable. He says, altogether, these are wise teachings that come from one shepherd. All wisdom is from God. He's saying this is the godly wisdom that, that we need to have that holds us firm. And then he says this, he says, so be careful, my son, about other teachings. People are always writing books and there is too much, and too much study will make you tired. This is 3,000 years ago, Solomon's like, listen, there's too many books that are being published, 
right? This is like before Amazon. <laughs> and these weren't books on math and science and you know, architecture. These were, these were new philosophical ideas on what does it mean to be human? How do we approach the gods? And he's saying there's, there's so much of that. There's so much of that. Listen, don't give in to it. It's just going to make you tired. It's going to confuse you. It's going to make you weary. Instead, hold fast to the teachings of wisdom that comes from God. That that's what you need. That, that spiritual maturity within the church, when we come together and we are taught by the word of God, by, by the church leadership that gives to us God's very word, what it does is it helps to make us steadfast in those sea of ideas. And a thousand years or so after Solomon wrote, there was another gentleman who's Paul, who's writing to us this, bo this book of the, the letter of Ephesians. And Paul writes to a young church planter that he was discipling, a man named Timothy, and he tells him almost the same thing. He just phrases it a little bit differently. Paul says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. As a pastor, he's saying, take care of the church that you have, have been uh, called to shepherd and to take care of. And he says, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. And what Paul's referencing here is he's referencing some ideas that were coming out in Timothy's day that later in the second century grew into a heresy known as Gnosticism. And the Gnostic idea was, was that there are hidden knowledge or hidden meaning about God. And that uh, God has given some revelation in his word, but there's a secret revelation about God. And you won't find it in God's revelation about himself. Instead, that secret additional teaching can only be found in yourself. This is the second century. And just, that sounds so similar to what we said in week one that our culture is wrestling with today with expressive individualism. Right? So a lot of these ideas actually aren't very new. They're just kind of repackaged ideas of old. And, and there, Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, there's all these ideas in culture about how to find the truth about God. Don't, just don't give in to that. Stay grounded in what you know to be true. It will make you steadfast. And I, and I love how the church can be an anchor point for this. You know, it was like about a year ago, uh, our next-gen team, our student ministries and our children's ministry, we're just evaluating the curriculum that they had been using. And uh, we have some curriculum that just kind of helps supplement some teachings that we, we do on Sunday mornings. And one of the, that, one of the things that our, our team was just wrestling with is, is they felt like it, it, it just isn't deep enough on Scripture. Like, it's fine, it, it's not bad, but it's just not, we're not kind of getting into the meat of Scripture. And the concern is that we need to do that for the next generation. And so our team uh, pulled in a number of people from the congregation who were able to use their spiritual gifts. So a team was formed and people with the spiritual gift of discernment and uh, with teaching and, and, uh, and some of the, the prophetic voices would come together, they came together and met with our staff. And over about a year, they studied and researched and prayed together and they made a decision on a new curriculum. They have been piloting it this summer and, and this fall in just a few weeks. They're, they're launching a brand new curriculum. And the whole purpose is to make sure that we are steadfast and rooting in the word of God because that curriculum is all about identity for children about who they are in Christ. And how important is that 
for them to be steadfast in that knowledge uh, as we move forward, right? So, so, so maturity, spiritually speaking, helps us to be steadfast in a sea of ideas, but it also uh, gives us the second thing, and Paul gets into that at the end of verse 14. So in addition to not being blown here and there by every wind of teaching, he says, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Saying we need to help people avoid being tricked. Uh, So the second thing that spiritual maturity does for us is it helps make us discerning against deceit. That when we become spiritually mature, we're able to discern people who are trying to, or teachings that have small and subtle deceit in them that that would lead us astray. Uh, My my son is really into a number of of YouTube videos, and one of the ones, one of the channels he just loves watching um, is a guy who's an engineer and really teaches kids kind of in everyday experiences uh, about engineering and and science and, and physics, and he does a great job with it. And uh, recently, he had a video series about some of the deceitfulness of carnival games. So if you're going to the state fair, this will be helpful, right? And one of the ones that he says is most deceitful is this game right here. Uh, It's the ladder rope climb. And the reason this is so deceitful is, is because it plays on something that we think we know to be true, and then there's a small little twist to it. So how a ladder works is, uh, and you see the ladder here, uh, a ladder works that as long as you maintain your center of gravity within the width of a ladder, as long as you keep your balance within the width of the ladder, you're fine. You're you're able to be on that ladder and you're very stable. Uh, But what this uh, game does is right here on either end, instead of the ladder being anchored on both points, it comes to one single point. And that single point becomes a pivot point, which means in order to maintain your person on the ladder, instead of just having your weight evenly distributed across the width of the ladder, it literally needs to be right on the center line because that's where once your your center of gravity gets off of that center point, once you get out in the middle of the ladder, you get dumped. And it looks like it should be stable, but it actually isn't, and there's a small deceit, and that's why the game is so effective and so challenging. Our culture has lies that are out there. There are small little deceits that if you're not discerning, when you trust your weight to them, they dump you. I'll just give you one. Have you heard this, this phrase in, in our culture that, that God helps those who help themselves? I mean, it sounds like a proverb, doesn't it? It sounds like something Solomon would have written. He didn't. It's not in the book of Proverbs. It's not in the Bible, because it's not true. And the reason it's so deceitful is on the surface, it seems like that should be true, because we know from Scripture that God does value hard work. God says that we are to work for, uh, and whatever we do, we're to work as if we're working for the Lord himself. Because when you choose to commit yourself fully to something, and you work hard for it, it is a form of worship. It makes God look good. It's a, it's a way to worship him. It, it, it's, a, it, it's something that we are called by scripture to value hard work. So you hear that phrase and you're like, okay, well that must be something I can hold on to. But the small twist is that God helps those who help themselves. And the twist means that God's help is contingent not on his nature and his character, but God helping me is contingent on my actions. 
So that means it starts with me, not with God. And the moment we start trusting ourselves, we never make it to trust God. Do you see the small little twist? And with that twist, the enemy of our souls knows, if I can just take something that's almost true and just get them to trust themselves, they'll never look to God again. And that's why it's so important for us to be able to pick up on that deceit that's there. And spiritual maturity can help us identify those things and save us from getting dumped, as it were. And then spiritual maturity does a third thing for us, and, and Paul mentions this in verse 15. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. And and the image that Paul gives to us there is almost humorous. It's the image, kind of like a cartoon, of of like an, an infant body with a mature man's head on it. It just kind of looks ridiculous. But the idea is that we are the body of Christ. And so that as we mature, we mature into Jesus. He's, he's fully mature. And we kind of catch up, which means the more and more we mature as a church and as a body of believers, the more and more we begin to look and act like Jesus, who, who is the fullness of spiritual maturity. And, and so that means that you and I, when we mature, we start looking and acting like Jesus, who we know was full of truth. It's the very word of God in in the flesh. But Jesus was also full of grace and he brought that truth in a very loving way. And so when Paul tells us in verse 15 that we are to speak the truth in love, he's giving to us the third area of why spiritual maturity matters and that spiritual maturity makes us loving in a world of lies. That we can speak the truth, but we can do so in a loving way. The enemy of our souls is so crafty. And the enemy of our souls wants to try to deceive us on two levels. The first is just the deceit. We, we just talked about that. Right? If, if, if the enemy can get us distracted or get us to believe something that's not true, then we're kind of out there on that rope ladder just, just hanging on for dear life and, and our, our faith can be ruined. But the enemy knows that if if we become spiritually mature, if we start committing ourselves to God's word and we know the truth, then we catch those elements of deceit and we stand against them and he knows that. And so instead of trying to entrap us or trick us through just common deceit, the enemy of our souls goes into strategy number two, which is to get us not to believe the lie, but to believe where, what is the source of the lie. Because see, we, we can look at our culture and we can see all the lies that are out there and the enemy of our souls kind of comes and whispers in our ear and he goes, man, there's a lot of lies out there, aren't there? There's a lot of untruth. Do you know this untruth is doing a lot of harm to people? You know what the problem is? It's all those people who believe the lies. They're the problem. They're the ones that are teaching your kids. They're the enemy. You know, if we can just get them out of power, world would be a better place. You you, you know, if if we can just get them to stop teaching that, the world's going to be a better place. You know, if we could just silence them, the world would be a better place because they're the source of all of the lies in culture. And it's deceitful because that's not true. 
A lot of people in our culture who are perpetuating the lies are just perpetuating what they have been taught falsely because they've bottom in to the deceit of the enemy. They're not the source of the lies. The source is the enemy. And the, the, the devil knows that once he can convince us to focus on other people as the problem, he's already got us off mission. Because once we start attacking the people that we're called to save, we're not focused on the right thing. And so it's, he's just so crafty, and that's why spiritual maturity means that yes, we speak truth, but we do it in a loving way. Because we recognize that the people who are speaking those, those lies, they don't know any better. And they need to be set free from the truth. They've been held captive. They're not the problem. They're the point. They're the purpose of our ministry. And, and there are some churches out there that, that can get so high and mighty about the word of God that that they just attack viciously people that believe things that are, are lies that are so prevalent and, and it's just so unloving. That's not a sign of spiritual maturity. A sign of spiritual maturity is to be able to speak confidently the truth, but to do it in a loving way. This summer I was coaching baseball and uh, we had a kid on our baseball team um, that uh, just, he, he kind of made a couple base running blunders and we had a game, we had an inning where we were just, we were building, things were going really well, and he ran himself into a double play. Now, if you don't know anything about baseball, this is something that is totally avoidable, uh, and when it happens, it just kills all of your team's momentum, and it just gives a huge advantage to the other team. And so it happened, and it was just crushing when it happened. It was like, oh my goodness, this just kind of ruined our inning, and I'm, I'm a little frustrated, to be honest, as the coach, because we, you know, we had some good things going. And, uh, and so he's, he's kind of jogging back to the, to the dugout, and I'm like, okay, I'm the coach, so I need to say something. So I kind of walk up toward him, and before I can say anything to him, he, he looks over at me, and I can just tell by the expression in his eyes, he's totally confused. And he looks at me, and he goes, coach, he goes, why am I out? He goes, what happened? He goes, they didn't even throw it to the right base. I, they didn't tag me. They threw it to the base I was at before. They, like, why am I out? And I realized, oh, this guy doesn't know the rules. Like, he's totally, he's totally confused because he doesn't know the rule. The problem wasn't with the player. The problem was the player didn't know the truth. Which means the problem wasn't with the player. The problem was with the person who was supposed to teach the player the rules. <laughs> the problem was with the coach. <laughs> Can I suggest to you that when we see all the lies that people are believing in our culture, part of the problem may be that those of us who have been committed followers of Jesus have not been fully mature. And, and maybe instead of using our opportunity of what we know to be true to help in love, coach people to Jesus, maybe we've been a little too focused on ourselves. And if that's true, there's incredible hope, not only for us, but for our world. Because if we become mature, if we lean into maturity and make the most of the church, what that means is it means that we can then start helping to speak the truth in love to, to the world around us. 
I mean, think about the Twin Cities right now. Think about our nation right now. Don't we need leadership? Don't, don't we need someone who can be a leader, someone who can be, who can be steadfast? Don't we need someone who can be discerning? Don't we need someone who can speak the truth, but do it in a loving way? That person is Jesus. And how he wants to transform our community is through his church. He's waiting for us to mature so he can do that. And as a church, if, if we will commit ourselves to being so sold out for Jesus, so committed to his church, so in on what he wants to do in and through his church, I am convinced that we can bring a gospel transformation to the lives of those around us. Because we bring the truth that sets people free in a way that is filled with the love of a savior. That's what it means to be part of the church. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to do and why our spiritual maturity matters so much. So the question is, how do we step into that maturity? And Paul tells us in verse 16, from him, it's from Jesus. It starts with him, he's the head of the church. The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligaments, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. If we want to see the image that Paul gives to us happen in our own community, it starts with each one of us making the most of the church that Jesus has given to us. That's what Lauren did Lauren was concerned about all the things that are happening out there in culture, and so she turned to the church. She gathered together with a group of moms who were also concerned about what was happening in culture to learn about it so that they could be confident and speak and lead their families in the truth, but also in a loving way. And her involvement in that group and that book club that she went through made such an impact, not only for her, but is also making an impact for her family. I want to share her story with you now. Please watch the screen. I'm Lauren Sell. Um, my husband is Patrick, and we have three kids, Grace, Patty, and Mary. So what, what motivated me to kind of get involved in, in the book club was I could see topics that my kids were being introduced to at school or the friends that they were interacting with. Um, and I needed a little bit more information so as not to be afraid. What is really going on here so that I can really equip, equip us all as a family to be more like Jesus? When I looked at what spiritual maturity was, I kind of narrowed it down to two things. Um, one is there's an aspect of faith that you, on your, on your faith journey, you get stronger and stronger as you see how the Lord is reliable and faithful and provides for you. But there's this also element of knowledge that I know more and more, and I see how it applies more and more to my life. And I see how what God says in his word is verifiable. So being in a book club helps to just 
work through and discuss um, how these issues are affecting my kids, how they're affecting me, how they're um, affecting society. Let's talk about it together just as a Christian group. Let's share as a mom how difficult this is, how our kids are struggling, how they're hurting, how, and then you build one another up. There's a camaraderie there of, um, yeah, it's hard. And, and then I can sit with my child and be like, it's hard, but it's real. And this is who Jesus wants us to be. But I've gotten that from women that I've shared with, you know, women that I've hung out with and, that, and I know that they're experiencing it too. It, it makes me think a lot about like a football team. You know, we each have different roles. We do, each have different abilities. And as a church, we're, we're, trying, we're trying to stay equipped on what the opponent's game plan is. We, we, there's some knowledge about what the opponent's game plan is, but then we need to know in practice how to avoid those, um, those attacks, really. But it, it's, it's scary. So you, yeah, you, you need your team. You need your team behind you, um, cheering each other on, equipping each other, gathering information, um, each using our gifts and abilities to, to strengthen one another, to strengthen the whole team. So I, I think your church, your church is your team. Church is your team. We don't do this alone. I know you're busy. All of us are. Schedules are full. This is not a guilt trip about joining a program or getting into a group. I want us to have the vision that Jesus has about his church so that we can understand the power and the potential of what we are invited by Jesus to be part of. He has given us one another so that we can honor him as we commit to make more disciples for Jesus Christ. And the invitation that Jesus gives to us is to make the most of the church. Father, we do pray that we would have your vision for your church. This is your idea. It's your church. And so, Father, I pray that we would be steadfast, Lord, as we commit ourselves to your word and to your ways. And Lord, I pray that you would inspire us through your Holy Spirit to be the church that you intend. And Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that your kingdom come and your will be done. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. God bless you as you go. We look forward to seeing you next Sunday.